Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, and this is, well, it's a good morning to me in Arizona, but it's afternoon almost everywhere else. This is Patty Holstrand, and this is KWAD Radio, and we're on live today. It's been a while. It's been the beginning of the month, and, uh, you know, I said, hey, we need to start talking to some people. So I definitely got some, you know, people lined up for October, but we're not done, not into October yet, and we'd like to end it here because we've got a special guest, Michael D'Ambrosio. I've known him since 2004. Met him at one of the Western Cons. Actually, it was uh, World Fantasy in Phoenix. And I've known him since then, and uh, his work, time, his Time Fractured series, and he started with his first book then, and he worked up to other ones. He's got a whole Space Frontiers uh, series, which is his long one. He's uh fourth book uh, on that one recently, this year. So that was in April, I believe. And then we got uh, Night Crapes, which was his adult horror. And that's the one we started on. Uh, he started on with me about three years ago. So about three years ago, we talked to, talked to him at the Leprechaun in, I believe we were in Mesa at the time. And he might, you know, know for sure. But anyway, he, I met, you know, met him again and talked to him about what we were, what we were doing for authors at that time. And he wanted to come aboard. He's got, you know, not only me, but he also has another uh, publisher as well. That's Helm Publishing. And they have the Space Frontier series. And then I help them with the Night Craves and the Fracture Time series. Uh, recently, he went to the, the Ink Tips Pitch Summit in Burbank, California. And he was able to take his screenplays that he's been working on and take them to get them, you know, a pitch session with uh, some people who would be interested in taking those screenplays to the screen or television. So, with that, I believe that he's on the line. Is that you, Michael? Hi, Patty. It sure is. <laughs> How you doing? Good, good. Now, it's right here that you've been writing since the year 2000. That's about right. And you and I met in 2004, and you had your first book, yeah, in hardcover at that time, mm-hmm. and I believe you were you were finishing up your second book. That's about right. Yes. Yeah, that was when uh, so I started with with uh, Pentland Press out of Raleigh back in two thousand and two, I believe it was. And unfortunately for me, after they printed the first thousand books, they were bought out by someone else that didn't do fiction. So I went to the uh, self publishing for a little bit with our Universe. And that's about the time you rescued me. <laughs> <laughs> well, when did you meet Diane? Because I, you know you had went with her, and you, I believe you already had a book with her when I met you, or the second time that I met you. Yeah, that was probably around 2004, 2005, right in that time frame. Because um, after I finished the trilogy, I took a little time off to work on, on screenplays. And then, you know, then I got back into it. So that at the time, she picked up the uh, new series, and you picked up my trilogy. Right, yeah, because it was after that. I believe that you were you were working on your second book in the 
uh, Space Frontiers when we talked, and I believe was it was a Leprechaun or was it a Copperchaun that we talked at in Mesa? Uh, I'm trying to remember. I think, I think it was Copperchaun. Yeah, it might have been Tempe, okay. at the uh, Tempe Mission Palms. Oh, okay. Well, I know we were in 2004, we were in Tempe Mission Palms. So, you know, I don't keep track of, of every place. <laughs> <laughs> oh, every place we were, exactly what town, and I know Mike Wilmoth does that, but um, I'm not able to keep track of that without going back and checking, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's tough, and I could be wrong, too. I've been to so many places. <laughs> oh, I know you have. I know you have, and we're definitely going to talk about that. I wanted to tell people about some things that you've done recently, including going to and speaking at the Library of Congress. Tell us how that happened. Oh, that was pretty interesting. Um I met a woman at Balticon who works for the Library of Congress, and she approached me and talked to me about possibly coming down there and speaking uh, to their crowd. So, I mean, to me it was a no-brainer. I was more than happy to, to accommodate them. And uh, it was it was a very interesting experience. Uh, I got down there. They gave me a tour of the library, uh, which that's something I would recommend anybody that has a chance to do. It, it's really outstanding, you know, some of the art and the uh, culture that they have there. You know, it, was just, it was just an experience you'd never forget. And uh, then I spoke for about an hour, an hour and 15 minutes uh, to a pretty good-sized crowd, and we, we had a lot of fun. Afterwards, we had lunch together, you know, uh, myself, the woman that runs it, and several other people. And, yeah, it was nice. It made it was a long day, but it was well worth the trip. <laughs> and we have some pictures that I, I put up for you on that. Just to show that you were actually there. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking a little presidential in the one picture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was that was cool, um, and of course you've you've gone to a lot of different conventions. Uh, when did you start going to to fan conventions? Uh, ironically, 2004 uh, WesterCon was my very first convention, and I think at the time they were looking for a couple of new writers, and I happened to, I guess somehow my name came up, and up to that point I didn't know that these conventions even existed. You know, even though being from Philadelphia, uh, the PhilCon, the Philadelphia convention is the longest running one in the country probably about 20 minutes from my house and I've never heard of it before. <laughs> you know, this is a this is what happens a lot. And I'm not quite sure how that happens, but even people who read speculative fiction don't seem to know that there's cons, you know, conventions right in their own town. And so anybody who's listening and I know you guys are there cuz I can see you that you are uh you can have these kind of conventions around you if you're in major cities. So you need to, you know, take take it Take a little time to get on the internet and double check, find out where they are, because you know you can grow some really strong friendships with this group. Yeah, Would you agree? Back it, yeah, I missed a lot of opportunities back as a kid to see people like Arthur Clarke, Isaac Asimov. All these people came through Philadelphia, and like I said, it was an opportunity I missed, and you know, I really wish I would have had a chance to see them. Yeah, I, I myself have been going since. Uh, for about 20 years now. So it's been actually more than 20 years. And I had friends who went to these cons because, you know, I, I grew up with a, a lot of geeks. <laughs> <laughs> and they they all went to these kind of cons, and I hadn't gone at that time, even though I was writing uh, when I was in junior high. I was writing, I was writing, especially the fiction, and uh, made it in the literary magazine for the library the local library uh, in science fiction magazine. <laughs> but, you know, even though I did that, uh, I still 
wasn't hooked up to this this group in the conventions until oh geez, uh, many years after I got married. Um, but before my son was born, so you know he's, he's 18 now. So that goes to show you how long I've been doing this. Uh, but as a you know as a member, I've been sitting in the audience for a good 18 of those years and listening to authors uh, who told me not only uh, great things about being an author, but a lot of horror stories. And this is where I'm going with this. <laughs> where, where I'm going with this <laughs> is, is, is that it's, it's very hard to you know, to be an author, not only just, I mean, here you, you create something, and, and that's actually the easy part. And I know most of most of those who haven't written a book and really want to think that we're crazy when we say that. But it's true. Uh, it, the easy part winds up being the writing because we love it. And once we're done with it, it's like, okay, now what do I do with it? And then most people don't go to your level. But I've heard a lot of authors who told me a lot of horror stories about dealing with, you know, uh, you know, the editors and and publishers of the industry because you know the the they, they have certain way of doing business, and it's crazy how they have been dropped, uh, you know, by their editors after years of working with them. They suddenly move to a different company, and the publisher no longer has an interest. And that particular book, so they drop them, or worse, they keep them, and then don't you know they push the book through, and then it sits on the shelf for the six weeks and pull, it gets pulled back, and you've you've gotten your reputation tarnished without ever knowing why. Uh, so these are the that. <laughs> <laughs> and these are the kind of horror stories I sat in the other you know in the audience and listened to. And wondered, was there any hope for the rest of us? <laughs> and then what you've done is not only, you know, dealt with that part, but you've also dealt with, okay, you're taking your screenplay, uh, adapted from your books. So let's go back a second and ask you, how did you decide to get into screenwriting? Well, back in 2001, when the Factory Time first came out, uh, about three weeks after it came out, and that was when it was in the hardback, right before the publisher, you know, was bought out by somebody else. Um, I got a phone call from a fella. You know, he, he claimed he was the VP of development from a, a major uh, motion picture company. And at first, I thought it was one of my friends playing a joke. But uh, here, you know, it was somebody they were they were seriously interested in, and they were going to write the screenplay from my book. And they would, you know, of course, they said they wanted to go on and produce it from there. So everything was going well with that. And uh, it looked like we had a deal. I was scheduled to go out there the following week and sign a contract. And, you know, I'm on top of the world. Book just came out, movie deal. And then 9-11 hit. And then they called back the next day to say they changed their mind because of that. They were going with something different. So it kind of deflated me. And I, I always thought about it, you know, you know the, the chances of the book becoming a movie again. And I think for someone to pick, to get an offer like that, for someone to want to pick up your book is really tough. But for you to actually adapt the book to a screenplay or have someone adapt it for you, that's your best chance of seeing the book ever become a movie. So, yeah, and I have heard from a couple authors who actually had let a couple other guys who 
to do their screenplay based on their book. Um, so how hard is that to find somebody to actually, you know, take on that that role? There are there are people out there, typically I find them at the conventions. You know, I, I know several have approached me and a couple I've gotten to know are very very good at it, but I you know, for me I wanted to do it myself and the one thing I was advised about from a couple of people out there was if you're going to do it, you really have to divorce yourself from the story that it's yours. You have to really think of it from a, produce, a producer standpoint, uh, from a marketing standpoint, because you're going to have to make changes. Uh, you know, especially if you wrote the story, if you wrote the book before you thought about making it a movie, there's a lot of things that will have to change. And if you're dead set against changing anything, like a lot of people say, it's your baby. Well, you know, why would you change anything? You know, unless you're Peter Jackson and you're going to make um, Lord of the Rings, you know, right from the book, you know, it's, it's very difficult. So uh, for me, it was a transition. It was a learning experience. Um, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to meet with a lot of producers and talk to them, you know, get recommendations as I, you know when I started into the business, you know, screenwriting, and they were able to give me a lot of helpful tips. Now, once I started developing the screenplays, I put them in some contests. You know, I would pick out contests where they would give you feedback. And I, I would start taking some of the criticisms and evaluate them and try to look and see if they were, you know, valid or if they were just, you know, opinionated. And, you know, I learned, you know, some of the criticism was good, some wasn't. But now I've gotten to a point where I really feel like I understand what the producers are looking for, you know, sp- you know, spacing out your story, how you pace your sequences. A lot of those things, they just come with experience. And from writing for so, uh, so, so long now and, you know, you know, going through the edits and, you know, you know, critiques from producers that have looked at it, you know, it's really, you know, I feel like I've gotten to that point where I feel like it's just a matter of time. Yeah, it's a process. It's a process, and, and I totally agree with you that, and I, I tell authors this often, so goodness sakes, you got to learn learn your craft. You know, if you're going to get into something, this is your job. So you need to take it seriously and learn from the mistakes you make. And, you know, everyone's going to make them. They're not perfect, and, and no matter how, you know, how many things you're going to learn from others. And that's, as I said, take those uh those little tidbits and and as you say gauge whether or not uh it's worth making changes to um i know i did that with my manuscript you know for years i listened to critiques and i had to you know gauge whether or not i wished to change it based on what they said or whether or not they're full of hot air so <laughs> you, you gotta make your decisions and about learn from the experience and yeah, I think that's what you're done. Yeah, your sources are human. So there, you know, sometimes, uh, like for instance, if you write horror, uh, you know, I've had a couple of feedbacks where I could tell it was someone that just didn't like horror. And then there are other mm-hmm. times where I've gotten feedbacks where there were a lot of really good things, and then there were a couple of things that could be better. And in the big scheme of things, a lot of cases, what you have may be good enough, but as a writer, you always want to be better than that. Yeah, you need to stand out in the crowd, especially nowadays. Um, and and by having a manuscript uh, or a script that is that is you know pretty much too perfect um, is really the key to you know getting something going on in, in any front. Uh, you need to stand out in front by doing it right. <laughs> and so uh, I think that you're right. You are you are there of making something happen. And uh, and you know uh, that I'm I'm always behind you 100 percent on that. So I just would love to see something happen for you. <laughs> well, after this weekend, we may be closed. 
Well, tell me about this pitch session because, uh, you know, I didn't, haven't even heard of these. So how did you get to find out about this? Well, there's uh, a couple of sites out there that, that I advertise my scripts on that are basically they're sites designed where producers subscribe to them and writers do. And between them, it's a chance where, like, you know, if a writer likes or a producer sees something that you've written and he likes it, you know, he'll contact you and, and ask to see the script. Like, you know, some some of them you'll have a whole script. Some of them you only put on, like, a synopsis and a log line. So, you know, there's, there's different ones out there. But uh, I always look for the success rate to see how many – uh, of the scripts that were posted or how many of the people that subscribed, their their work went on to become movies. And Inktip has always had a very good reputation. Uh, several years ago, I did a pitch fest for another another group, and it was really disappointing the way it was set up. And it was really, it was kind of a madhouse. Um, I really only got to talk to about seven different people, and none of them were people that, none of them were from companies that I really had the intention of talking to. So I was kind of you know, because, you know, if you weren't there at the front end of the line, if you didn't get there at 4 o'clock in the morning, you know, the day it started, you were pretty much out of luck. Uh, now, the way Inktip ran theirs was very effective. Uh, I thought it was fantastic. And I actually got a chance to, to pitch my different screenplays to 62 people, which which that's an outstanding number for uh, for six hours. <laughs> and I, was, and uh, I said three did ask for copies of the scripts right there. Several, you know, are, are supposed to get back to me about, you know, you know, sending the scripts, where to send them, filling out the, uh, you know, the the uh, waiver, the release form, and such. So I'm expecting to hear from several more on that. But uh, the one, you know, for instance, I had one one producer. He's very interested in the uh, TV series that we've written for Fracture Time. Uh, another one, I was, I was surprised, is interested in the, the Space Frontier script. You know, based, this is based on the first half of the first book in the series. And I commented, I said, well, this might be a bigger budget, you know, than than you're aware of. And you know, the comment was made, well, money's not an object to us. You know, if we like it, we can do it, which was very encouraging. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, so then uh, another script of mine, Princess Payne, uh, that did really well among the action producers. Uh, now, when you go to the Pitch Fest, these producers are all broken into groups. So, like, for instance, maybe tables 1 through 20 might be action, uh, 20 to 25 science fiction. So they're all in groups, and basically what happens is you'll line up outside the, you know, the ballroom or the convention center, whichever they're using, and uh, they'll have all the numbers in a row, and the numbers correspond to the tables. And under the number, it'll tell uh, the, the name of the producer that's there, the company's with, and what they're looking for. Now, with InkTip, what they did, they set it up so you had three or four producers at a table, which gave you an opportunity to pitch to more people, which I thought was great because then they can they sometimes they get comments from each other. Uh, one comment I heard made from uh, one producer was he mentioned to the other one, he goes, this might be something we could work on together doing one of these projects. Wow. So it op- it opens other doors and it does give you a chance to cover a whole lot more territory as far as you know how many people you can talk to. So uh, so it really it was it was a, I felt it was a very productive weekend and like I said it seems like uh, the, the people I spoke with are very very interested. So you know the next step now is to see once they set up their their budgeting their casting and such you know if it's something they decide is feasible then they'll they'll turn around and make an offer as far as either optioning the screenplays or or going into an outright uh, deal to buy them. Okay, I have two questions. One is these uh, websites that you went to to find out about these uh, pitch sessions, uh, are those a free websites that you went on to, or do you, is it a paid subscription kind of thing? They're free websites to go on and look at, and you can see the services that, that they offer. And then, you know, once you get on there, if you want to solicit their services, like, for instance, if you want to post your screenplays, um, the screenplays are available, but they're not available for anybody to go on there and look at. It's, it has to be someone that subscribes right. to it. 
So yeah, that would make sense. I mean, you know, you're told to hold uh, copyright issue. So you yeah. know, if they wouldn't want to just hand it off to anybody, you know. <laughs> yeah, and so, they do yeah, well, like for, yeah. And for instance, with InkTip, I know they do a very good job of screening their producers as well to make sure that that the producers they have, their quality producers, they have a good reputation. Uh, you know, because it's very unlikely you're going to have someone out there trying to steal your work. Uh, it, it has happened. It, it, well, it's happened once that I know of. This, um, uh, I don't know if you remember uh, George Clooney's movie, uh, uh, Syriana. Uh, that was originally oh, written yeah. by a, a woman from Australia. And what happened with his company, there was an employee who was, from what I understand, was getting ready to quit. Either that or they were getting ready to fire him, I'm not sure. But the employee took the screenplay, whited her name out, put his name on there, and presented it to George Clooney. Well, they made the movie, and it was a very good movie. You know, it was seen by people around the world. And I guess in Australia, when the girl saw it, she was a little upset. So it went before the be, World yeah. Court. Yeah, she took them to the World Court in Hague, um, Netherlands. And uh, actually, you know, they ruled in her favor because obviously the script was word for word. It was hers. And, you know, she had, <clears throat> obviously she had hers, her copyrighted version. And uh, George Clooney, of course, he didn't want any, you know, he really didn't need to get involved in anything, you know, like that, that kind of a conspiracy. So, his, you know, he was more than happy to make amends with her for it, you know, because it's something he had no part of. He had no idea it was stolen. But right. the employee, the employee was prosecuted for it. So um, there are things that, that are there to protect the writer. But overall, the producers, for them to be dragged into something like that, that could hurt their credit with uh, with banks, uh, with you know, with sure. sponsors, investors. So it's something they really don't want. You know, it's easier for them to you know stay away from something if they're if they have something in the pipeline that might be similar to it. You know, and like I said, if something right. does happen, you know, that's really suspicious, a lot of times they just they'll work something out. They'll say, you know, and a lot of cases they'll say, well, look, let us take another look at your script. Maybe we can do something with it, or let me see another script. But um, they, you know, for the most part, most of these people are reputable. They really don't want to get into that. Yeah, I mean, I would think so. You know, they they would want it to get. <laughs> that would cause too many problems, and of course, cost them too much money. Um, I know you talked about Princess Payne. You don't have that in a book, so tell us about that. Well, Princess Payne, I'm actually working on the book for that right now. And each of my series, for instance, like with the Fractured Time series, in book two, the lead character, he has an affair with a shapeshifter and they have a little boy. That's the last you hear about the little boy in the story. Uh, when we go on to the new series, the Space Frontier series, this is 18 years after the, tr- the original trilogy ends, and it's his adventures. Uh, they're independent of the trilogy, you know, but... But there is a link between him and his father in, in the first series. So it, what happens with, in uh, the Space Frontier series, uh, the lead character, he's young. He's about 18. Uh, he gets involved with a girl that's about 16 or, or sixteen or 17. And um, they have a, a little girl. And that's all you really know about her because every time they try to spend time with her, you know, the things are happening around the universe, or, you know, that they're, they have to go out and, you know, fight for the kingdom, you know, fight for their people. And they really never get a chance to spend time with her. So the way the series ends, and I hate to give away the ending of it, but uh, Princess Payne is the little girl 30 years later. She's a very bitter person because she thinks her parents abandoned her. She doesn't mm-hmm. know what really happened to them. So uh, she's she's kind of out there on her own. She, she doesn't want anything to do with anything they were involved with as far as politics, the, you, know, you know, they're ruling the kingdom. So she actually, because of her attitude, she's a... Um, she works more as a smuggler, you know. She, uh, she delivers. Uh, she's like a courier of illegal goods, things like that. So she's she's pretty much a badass, you know. She likes to fight, you know, bad temper. Doesn't really get along with anybody, you know. And she's kind of you know very much a loner. And uh, she yeah. teams up. Yeah, you know, she teams up with a um, 
a woman who's actually the, the leader of the rebels who are fighting, trying to save the kingdom. The the rebel leader, she knows that this this you know Marina is she's really the princess and not just a smuggler, and she keeps trying to convince her that she needs to step up and, and t- lead her people. Well, you know, she goes through denial for most of the story, which is, you know, kind of, that's what makes it interesting. So they really don't get along because of that. But the bigger, in the bigger scheme of things, they're hunted by a baron and his uh, assassin girlfriend, who's, who's quite a bit psychotic. And some of the fight scenes that happen in this story are pretty awesome. And that's one of the things that, that you know, from two of the producers I talked to about Princess Payne, that's one of the things that really got them you know, fired up about it, that, you know, this sounds like, you know, like Lara Croft maybe in Blade Runner, you know, something in that case. So, uh, <laughs> so you, know, I was, you know. Looking forward to the book, then, for sure. Yeah, I just have to find time to finish it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, we love kick-ass women, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, she's a treat. <laughs> So let me ask you then, since you did this kind of differently, because you had the books previously where you wrote them and then you wrote the screenplay based on the book, and this time you're going the opposite direction. You're going from you know the screenplay first, which we'll talk about how you, how that came about. But how do you think it's easier to to do the book first and then adapt it, or the the way that you're doing it with Princess Payne? Well. Based on everything I've learned, if I had it over, I would rather do the script first and then the book. Uh, mostly mm-hmm. because the, um, some of the things become limiting factors in the book. For instance, uh, some of your scenes, sometimes the number of characters. Um, like, for instance, like I said, if you get into a lot of like space warfare, you know, something along the lines of like Star Wars, well, you're going to significantly run the cost, you know, the budget up for for trying to do a movie from that. So a lot of things you learn to simplify, you know, reduce the number of characters. Maybe you can come up with a better scene, a better location for something to happen, where you can have several things happen there, you know, throughout the story. Um, with the with the screenplay, I find it's a lot easier because, you know, the, once I finish the screenplay, now I can go back and all the little things I would like to, you know, tell people about the character. You know, mm-hmm. what, how, how did her character become so scarred, uh, or how did um, how did this person become the way he was? And you could really get into a lot of the details that help explain the story. So in that case, I think I could, you know, I could actually make a better book from the screenplay than I can making trying to make a better screenplay from the book. So uh, also, also, you don't have to go back and change people's names. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, that's that's unfortunately one of the things that comes up where they may say, well, yeah, we need uh, more of a kick-ass name, uh, something that's a, that's going to grab people a little more. And in the book, maybe that character was supposed to be more subtle at the first half of the story. So you wanted uh, like kind of like a, a softer name. you know. And then that would be the irony of the book, the second half. But in the screenplay, it's like, no, we have to have this right from the beginning. So there's things, and sometimes it's just it's producer's preference. You know, but that one, once again, that's when it gets into uh, maybe I would change something for one producer, but leave it the same for other producers you know, and then see what their comments are. Yeah, that's that's a lot of uh, different uh, versions of the same script then. Yeah, and that's that's where you really have to keep track of your revisions too as far as what what you changed and why you changed it when you went from maybe 1 to 2, 2 to 3. And actually with most of them I'm up around 13, 14, 15 in terms of uh revisions. And you really have wow. to remember what they are. Cuz if someone yeah. comes up, you know, someone contacts you from 7 years ago, says, "Hey, I saw a copy of this back then, do you still have it?" And you're, you know, the first thing you're thinking is, "Oh my gosh, seven years ago, what version was that?" You know, <laughs> you, know you could lose so you your to, mind. So you have to keep track of when you made the revisions and and what they were for. Is, yes. 
Yeah. Wow. So that's a lot of work. That's, that's organizing and keeping keeping a lot of files. So question is then um uh, how far are you on the Princess Pain? Oh, about two and a half chapters into it. And oh. I pretty much have a good idea how you know the different things that I want to put into each chapter. Um because that's one of the things I always look at, how many chapters I want it to be. And I typically like to keep my stories around seventy to eighty thousand words. Yeah, you know, just uh just because I think that's comfortable. That's about, you know, six to eight hours for an average reader. You know, when you make them bigger than that, you run the price up of the book. And also, a lot of people don't really have the time to sit and read a whole book. So it kind of, you know, sometimes that, that takes away from it as well. Also, I think we're going with, with a lot shorter chapters now. I know that you have a have a love for long chapters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but because yeah. of the because of the the email, you know, the ebook of, of revolution right now. Um, the chapters are going shorter because obviously people are, are reading as, in little clips of time. And so that's what they're they're opting for is a lot more a lot more chapters. That just you know, smaller chapters. Just just to give you a little bug in the ear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's true though, you learn that people are always looking for a good stopping point. So in yeah. most cases, if someone has like an hour to sit down and read, you know, between maybe uh, before they have to go to work or when they first come home, you know, like I said, you know, chapter, uh, you know, it used to be pretty much a standard was like maybe 55, 60, 70 pages. Now you're looking at anywhere. It could be something as short as 15 pages to maybe 25, 30 pages. So it, it's changed, you know, it seems that it's changed uh, pretty significantly based on the, what the reader's like. Yeah, it's actually even smaller than that, but... <laughs> It says uh, five to ten pages is probably about what they're going for for chapters now. And it has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, if they're standing in line doing something or if they're, go, you know, go to the coffee shop and they've got, you know, uh, about half an hour, you know, to drink their coffee and they, they're able to read, uh, you know, a smaller chapter. And and that's what they're doing. That's one reason why articles work so well or short stories are working even better uh, because they're shorter uh, they got small clips of time. They can they can feel like they got something, uh, st- you know, something uh, accomplished by reading that short story in that time. So that's that's just the changes in in our market um, are happening, you know, uh, quite a quite a bit now. <laughs> you know, that's so, something you have an interesting point there because these are the type of things uh, you know, working with a small press publisher, you can adjust to. Uh, a lot of the uh, the big publishers are very slow to adapt to these changes, yeah. and you don't have a whole lot of say in that as well. So uh, I've been very lucky, very successful staying with uh, small press publishers. You know, so that's something I would highly recommend people consider. You know, not that there's anything against getting with a big publisher, but yeah, you know, there's advantages and disadvantages to both. And uh, oh, sure. I think for especially for a new writer, you know, small press publisher is a great way to start. It gives you a chance to build a fan base. Uh, which that's one of the things that hurts a lot of a lot of writers that that get on board with a big publisher. Uh, if you don't, if you can't produce numbers in the first six months, you're typically out of print. You know that you know you you get cut just because there's you know the sales aren't there, and it's very difficult to do without a fan base. So starting with a small press, there's no pressure. It gives you time to learn, uh, to learn how to market, learn how to get out there and speak to people. So uh, that's why I say it's um it's something to consider. Plus, the other thing being, too, that if you have any ambitions of, of a possible movie or writing a screenplay, 
yeah, that's another reason why you'd want to stay with a small press, uh, small press publisher, so you actually keep the rights. Um, one of the, that's one of the questions that everybody uh-huh. asked me that you know that saw the that I had that my, my screenplays came from a book. Uh, it was like, well, who owns the rights to it? You're the publisher. And I explained, no, I'm with a small press publisher specifically for this reason, so I keep the rights. So you're dealing with me, you know, and my agent, not not the publisher. And uh, yeah, that seems to simplify things for them. But uh, you know, to people I've talked to that were with the big publisher, uh, when a movie uh, uh, discussion came up, you know, they were left out of it because basically they have no right to it at all. Uh, you know, in some cases they may, based on the contract, if there's something happens, they may get a small royalty at best, but. For the most part, once a publisher, the big publisher buys the rights, uh, that that's their book. So you you don't really have any say, and you don't have any any right to any uh, as far as any kind of compensation for a movie. You know, if you go that route. Yeah, that's uh, actually something that uh, here I am advising Don to tr- to try to go to a big publisher for his, his new book for Transit. Might we might have to reconsider that based on that little information. Um, because yeah, he's one of these that like to control everything. <laughs> yeah, so. and it's funny because I have had two offers over the years from big publishers to pick up my uh, each of my series, and both times I've had to turn them down. And this was at conventions around other people, and people would say, "Are you crazy?" And it's like, "No, think about it." I say, "You know, if, uh, you know, I have screenplays. I want the movie deal. You know, that's that's my whole ambition. That you know, to go from the books to the movies. Why would I?" You know, you know, sell it to the big publisher, and you know, give that all away. Yeah, that, that's definitely true. And of course, you, you, you know, getting your own books to sell at your conventions, you're making the money. Yeah, it's you're not sharing that with your publisher. You buy, you bought your own stock. You sell your own stock. You keep your money from your own stock. Uh, that's that's the way I've been doing business. Yeah. <laughs> As and I I've want you guys to do it. <laughs> And I've talked to some of the, big, the uh, other writers that are with the big presses, and a lot of them have told me they, you know, some several of them have left and gone to small presses because they don't get the support they used to have. Uh, for instance, one oh, fellow, yeah. you know, I don't want to give away names on these guys and put them on the spot, but uh, one fellow, he's a big, he's been around for years writing science fiction, and he just recently left his uh, publisher basically because when he goes to a convention. He it used to be he would call the publisher and say, "Hey, send 300 books, you know, to the hotel, and I'll I'll sell them." And then afterwards, then he would send them a check for whatever he owed them for the books. Well, now they want him to buy the books first, and then you know, and this way they get their money up front before he sells them. And he said, "I've made these people money for all these years, and this is how they treat me yeah. because because of uh, their their economic situation has changed." And uh, like I said they're very slow to to adapt to the new. Uh, to the new styles and uh, to the new demands in the business, and because of that, uh, the big publisher, big publishers are stuck in a dying model. Now I'm yeah, sure they're yeah. going to adapt at some point in time. Out in this, you know, when it gets to the point where they're they're about ready to go under, but um, that, that's going to be the key to the future with publishing. How the big publishers do adapt, and I don't know. It's kind of like the federal government. When you're getting bigger and bigger, you're really not good at anything. You know, whereas when you're smaller, you know, you can focus on things and you can, you know, that's when you can excel at the, the, the different things. So, I, you know, for me, like I said, I'm very comfortable with a small press publisher and people like yourself and Diane Helm from Helm Publishing have done very good by me as far as being able to market the books, put them out there on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the sites. And, you know, these are both a visible presence out, uh, presence out in the field for me as well. Well, that's that's the way it is. I mean, we try to, you know, uh, I'm not sure what Diane does, but um, I think media is the key, and I'm I'm constantly looking at the changes in the, in the industry and saying, okay, we need to 
we need to tweak some things again. And uh, in order to keep in, you know, abreast with what's with the changes, like for instance, the short, the shorter chapters, you know, um, in eBooks, uh, that's really the key. And of course, that's where where we sell most of the books now is eBooks. Uh, so even if they're, you've got to change. So we're, as you said, as a small publisher, we're able to adapt to those changes faster than a dinosaur that has a lot of weight. <laughs> yeah. Well, another thing that's nice that we've been talking about that seems like it's a good idea is, is putting together the anthologies from different authors uh, with the short stories. Uh, you know, that's something I talk to a lot of people about at conventions, and they seem to be big on the anthologies right now because they're short stories and they can get through them in a short period of time. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, we're talking about, you know, ten to 20,000 words at the most. Yeah, although that that is a little bit of a change, switching from writing a novel to writing a short story. You really yeah. have to learn to adjust the size, your, your sequencing, you know, as far as your plots. I find that um, because of my short stories, I'm actually able to sell my books a little better. So. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I have people who ask me that question now, and I said, I said, I've actually have sold my entire series to uh, to more and more people now. They, they, you know, they bought the short story first, um, liked my style or whatever it was. Uh, they intrigued them. I, I can't tell because ebooks is very hard to tell, and because uh, that's where I sell my short stories. And and but I know that they that they bought the rest of them. Uh, because they bought them in print. <laughs> so then they ask him, uh, you know, how did you find out why I bought your short story? On, and and from that, I'm buying, buying your entire series. And I was like, oh, wow, that's very cool. That's good to know. Because, again, that, that helps me to figure out marketing strategy, not only for myself, but for all the authors. Yeah. That's, that's why I turn around and say, Mike, we need to use some short stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, another interesting thing too, when I when I spoke with several of the producers this weekend, um, one of the things they ask is, "What can you do if we were to do a movie on your book to help market it, help promote it?" And when I mention the conventions, how many I go to, and even if it's a convention I can't go to, but I know the people there, you know, I've emphasized to them, "Hey, if you guys get me a trailer, um, get me posters or what, you know, these things, uh, conventions. I mean, they're a great place to run the trailers. You know, people love that. Yeah." Yeah, yeah, and that's that seems to have made a big difference. Like, I mean, that's one thing I know. I've seen each one of them that asked that. They specifically wrote that down with an asterisk next to it that, you know, pretty much, hey, you know, I'm not just looking to dump the script on them, take the money and run. You know, exactly. so that, that is something to consider, you know, as a writer, you know, being visible out there. You know, it does, you know, you may not feel like you're doing a lot in sales, but you're doing a lot more than you think by by your appearances at conventions. Well, visibility. Visibility is where it's at, and and it's uh, one of my new mottos is that success is is gauged on. Uh, oh shoot, I forgot the term. Anyway, I'll come up with a term. Uh, it's you are successful when you are be, being seen. You're perceived as successful, and oh yeah, perceived success is nine tenths of the sale. That's my new motto. And it, as I said, they see you more often and and doing things. They have to go out and take a look at you and find out more about your work because they see you everywhere. Yeah, when you build a fan base, that fan you know most fans will follow you to, to the ends of the earth. 
you know, just because, you know, they're loyal to you. They like your writing. They like your stories. They want to know what's next. And, uh, you know, when I, I find a lot of times when I go to conventions, a lot of those fans, they want to stay close to you. You know, if you're hanging out afterwards, like a lot of times, like, I'll carry on discussions at the bar afterwards if people want to, you know, get together after a panel. And it's it's amazing, especially down in the Phoenix area. You know, I've got quite a following that, that love to, you know, stay around and talk. And, and that's something I really enjoy doing myself. Yeah, yeah, they they are pretty wonderful here when it comes to uh, getting a hold of an uh, of an author or that they love and they they stick with them. And, uh, it, it makes it tougher for new authors because you know you've got to build your fan base. But again, I think one benefit of and this is something that people don't get: why do you go to fan conventions? Well, because they're fans. <laughs> yeah, so I have to tell you now too that the people in Phoenix at WesterCon are the reason why I, I became the writer I am today. Uh, quick story on that. C.J. Cherry was the guest of honor there that year. Mm-hmm. And this was I really didn't do public speaking before, you know, not on that scale. And I was nervous about it, my first convention, my first panel. C.J. got food poisoning and didn't make it. The other two panelists didn't make it. And they had it in the big ballroom specifically for her. So here I am in front of all these people, and I'm thinking, you know, somebody came up to me and said, hey, you're doing this yourself. The other people aren't here. CJ's not making it. And my first thought was, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not going to make it. And then you know, I thought to myself, well, you know, this is it. This is something I like. The topic, I believe, was uh, for new writers, you know, breaking into the business, how to market and promote yourself. And I knew so much about this. And I thought to myself, well, pretend you're at the bar. When you're at a bar, it's a perfect example because you just talk to people. You get to be friends with everybody. And it turned out to be probably the best panel I, I ever had. You know, the people were very supportive. And even afterwards, you know, they were pushing us out of the room because, we were, you know, they wanted to get to the, to the next panel. And so a lot of people, I told them, hey, we can go talk in the lobby. And I was really impressed, the crowd that followed me. And I said, we had a real good time. Yeah, taking opportunities as they come to you. That That is a key, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, like I said, if I would, because of my lack of experience with public speaking, you know, if they weren't such a great crowd, I like I said, I was thinking to myself, maybe I should be doing this. <laughs> but uh, they, they they made me feel good and uh, they made me feel welcome there. Yeah, yeah, and and that's what's great about fans uh, again, because and and that's one reason why you you know as as a fiction author, uh, I think that you really should find. Uh, convention that suits your genre somewhere in your area and work it, you know, because I, I believe that regionalization is where you should start. Um, you know, going local and then moving out, expanding your borders as as you as you grow as an author and as you uh, you know get your work out there. So start locally and find your fan conventions and uh, you know. Get in the door. Go, you just go the first year and find out what it's all about and, and you know, the people there. So are you comfortable enough with the people? Get to know the people first. Um, and then let, you know, uh, find out who's in charge and let them know. Hand them off. Uh, hand them one of your books. Don't get, you know, cheap about it. Hand them one of your books and say, hey, I'm an author of this book. I think that it could really well with your theme for your convention, uh, perhaps next year you could consider me. And uh, nine times out of ten, you're going to get you're going to get in the door uh, with this group because you did that. Now another thing that happens too is uh, when you, especially when you're speaking on panels, 
you know, if you do well, if you, if you present yourself well as far as being knowledgeable in the field, a lot of times people approach you afterwards to say, hey, I'm from such and such convention. Would you like to come up to ours? Yeah. Just call the, you know, taking your opportunities again where you, where you get them. Uh, and so, yeah, and you've done that. So tell everybody approximately how many conventions you do per, per year. I've been averaging around 12. And then I've also been doing some of the book festivals. Uh, yeah, book signings, I don't do as many because they're kind of hit or miss with the bookstores. Uh, the, yeah. the independent bookstores I like to do because they seem to have a, a crowd that, you know, that comes no matter what. And you know, just having somebody there, you know, even if it's like five or six people just to sit and talk with, uh, that, that's, that's half the fun of, of being there. Whereas some of the bigger stores like uh, the Barnes & Nobles and Borders when they were around, it seemed most people came in with the idea they were in a hurry, they had to come and they grabbed what, what book they wanted and they left. They really didn't take the time to stay for myself or even other authors that I've seen at these signings. So, uh, so I've been focusing a lot on the independent bookstores, yeah, because we can do a lot more different things there, whether it's like sometimes we'll have maybe pizza, iced tea, uh, you know, coffee, hot chocolate with uh, homemade cookies. Uh, for instance, down in North Carolina. It's the little things, right? Yeah, North Carolina, the Barnhills Books and Gifts down there, they have wine tasting whenever I come to town. So Yeah, yeah they do that a lot. Yeah, so there's a lot of things you could do with the uh, the independent bookstores, and uh, you know they they work hard. You know they do a good job promoting the authors. You know, so like I said, I you know definitely recommend if you have any of the uh, independent bookstores around you, definitely go see them, talk to them. They're usually very knowledgeable people about books and authors. Definitely, definitely, and and uh, you know. Uh, yeah, they're great people to talk about the industry. You can sit there and complain about the industry to them, and, and they're in the same boat. You know, uh, they're in the book business just like you are. Uh, so, you know, you try to help each other because, again, a bookstore owner, just uh, is different than, than if it's a big, uh, you know, a big company because even though there are people there who really love books, um, some of them aren't, aren't really uh, into that. They're just They're just there for the job. So, yeah. <laughs> it's not, they are not librarians, okay? Librarians love books, um, but the books bookstore people who who work there may not be the lover of books. So, and yeah. I and I just met met some of those. It's like I was like, know, why do, thing, I just sell them. Yeah. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. yeah, another thing I've run into like um, the community relations managers at a lot of the Barnes and Noble stores. Those people are great, but the problem is they're they're handcuffed by the organization by what their rules are. So I know that some of them, they've done very good to help me out, especially up around um, my way here, some of the stores. But in the big scheme of things, like I said, many of the stores that, you know, can't, you know, depending upon the region, can't bring in authors or small press authors, you know, or they're only allowed maybe six a year. So there's a lot of restrictions they have that make it difficult for them to, to really support the authors. And like I said, uh, it's not the the people in the store, the community relations managers, it's it's more the policies of the organization that make it tough. But oh, like yeah. you said before, you have a big chain, you know, they, the bigger they are, the harder they are to uh, to adapt to, uh, to things. Yeah, and again, uh, you know, I've, I've mentioned this to, uh, I think almost every place I go to, is that the big bookstores are not in, this, in the business of selling books. They are actually in real estate. It's yeah. a matter of... <laughs> And what I mean by that is, is every square inch of that store is bought and sold to to a publisher. That's and correct. It, and, and so you, there's no way you're going to get into there as an independent author 
uh, into a spindle that's, that the big publisher are paying for. It's just not going to happen. So, uh, and that's been that way for for decades. So, how do you expect to break that mold? It's just well, it's <laughs> very impossible. <laughs> yeah, one of the things that helps, and once again, that goes back to to your publishers. Like for instance, like I said, yourself and uh, Diane. If someone goes into, well, let's say Borders, when Borders before they went out of business, and says, "Hey, I'm looking for Mike D'Ambrosio's book," and if they don't carry it. They can, they do have it on their computer system that they can get it for you, and usually relatively quick. So even though you're not on the shelf, uh, they can they can still get the book for you, you know, for yeah. a reader. As long as Which, you have an ISBN, you can they can get you. Yeah, and, and that goes back to when you promote yourself, people will come to the store for the books. Right, and is it I and that goes for backlist too, as you know, even though you have six weeks to sell, and they pulled you out the shelf. That doesn't mean that you suddenly went to backlist, and and that doesn't mean they can't get to your books. It's just that they have to order it. Right. But sometimes people are in this instant gratification era that they're in, and uh, it's like, okay, well, I don't have that one. So I'm just going to get whatever is on the shelf right now. So uh, it's it's a it's a tough one because you you just have to work harder at it. Um, in order to you know, get in front of more people. And again, I find that the the best market right now is not even the bookstores. Um, I'm We're selling books elsewhere. We're selling books at events, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, art walks in town, you know, May's the second Friday or, or, you know, Phoenix first Friday. Um, the art walks are doing better for us uh, as far as visibility and sales, and then a bookstore is. Yes, it seems that way. I've done a number of uh, the, the book fairs, book festivals downtown, you know, in the different towns, and it seems that you know they draw a, a good crowd, and people love buying books, you know, you know at those kind of events. Definitely, and uh, and then off the off the wall kind of places. Um, I was telling somebody about uh, had somebody who sold their books at liquor stores. <laughs> well, you remember the story from Dragon Con when I sold my books at the bar? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah they, that, that was a surprise. <laughs> alcohol and books go together. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> uh, Just, yeah, let's go was... back a second. You had uh, we were talking about changes you had to make. Uh, for your your screenplay, and uh, one of the big ones that that you and I had are going through right now is that you changed the name of Bob Smith to Doc to Doctor. Yeah, you Doc made him Smith, to yes. Doc Smith. And so you know we're having to go back and 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 change his name. Uh, how did you decide to change his name in the script? Well, what was pointed out to me by a couple of producers, they had mentioned that that uh, Robert Smith is actually the name of somebody famous from way back or what. And Margaret Smith, who was his wife, uh, is actually a famous actor over in the U.K., over in the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And also what I did with that, you know, I didn't want to change everything in the book, so what I did in the script, I changed her name from Margaret to M, you know, and just left it at that. You know, they were they were good with that. But little things like this, you don't, you know, I mean, you don't expect to hear that. But uh, like I said, the, 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 you know, two producers pointed it out to me, and, and they said, oh, you know, can't you give him a different name? And, you know, so I kind of, I think the way it went in the script, the kind of, his full name was Kurt, uh, 
or Kirkland, Robert Smith, and just changed it to Doc from there. So this way, the Robert was still there, but it was a middle name. You know, so I kind of got the best of both worlds on that. Ah, that's why you did that way. Yeah, that's why in the in the new edition of the book we changed it to Doc. You know, it's just easier that way. Yes, yeah, and that that way is covered. Now, you know, uh, I have a lot of people who talk to me about your about your books, and and they said, well, um, why do you think that he's able to uh, to adapt his books to screenplay? And I said a lot of reasons because you kind of write like that. You have a lot of dialogue. That's true. More, yeah. more dialogue. Because I, you know, I've seen, seen a lot of books now. Uh, you have more dialogue in your books than any of the other authors I have. So, <laughs> let's talk about that for a minute. Uh, well, my you, my characters multitask. <laughs> <laughs> well, your your characters talk to each other a lot. I mean, they talk to each other constantly. Uh, yeah, a lot and, of times they drive each other. Yeah, they do. I mean, when uh, the emotions of one, uh, you know, will cause another to react, and and so then of course they don't have any problem vo- uh, voicing that issue. <laughs> yeah, so I'm especially some of the things like I like the rivalries between the males and the females, and sometimes you get into things that are more cerebral, where it's like, where basically mental issues, where you really can't show, you know, you have to use, you know have a conversation to explain the behavior more so than, you know, just the actual actions of the behavior. Exactly. And uh, so they, that's, they are playing off of each other. And you do have a, uh, it's a fracture time, you have a, a lot of characters. That's true, yes. Makes it so easier when you, people have to get killed off. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, you, you they all, they're all fighting or, or you know, riding through space together. And do you think that, that and then I said some people said, well, it kind of, sounds kind of like serenity. And I said, in a way, you, you have the same, some of the same elements. Yeah, it's kind of like, it seems like I've had people say that it, it has elements from, like, depending upon how you look at it, you can find elements from pretty much every major show that's been out there. Um and part of that's by design. Part of it is just striving for something different. Um, I've had people say that Fractured Time is like that series Lost, but with teeth. You know, they said <laughs> it seems to have all the elements that Lost in, that Lost lost. <laughs> you know, but yeah. You know, then that's again, too, uh, yeah. One of the things too that I've heard um, from many producers that have looked at my scripts, where they always seem to emphasize they want a social issue inside, you know, your stories. Sure. And, and I. To me, that bugs me sometimes, and I talked to one producer this past weekend, and he had mentioned, well, they would be reluctant to to get involved with anything, <clears throat> excuse me, science fiction, because uh, the recent series, Terra Nova, failed. And I asked him, I said, do you know why that show failed? And he says, well, why do you think it failed? And I mentioned because it got too much, it started off great, you know, had a lot of potential, yeah. Yeah. but then it settled into social issues. And I don't think people really care for that, for social issues, not not to that degree. They can be subtle, they can be maybe small, you know, just a minor part. But when your whole story is driven by the social issues, people just tend it's too much like reality. I mean, it's all of a sudden it's not, you know, a good story anymore. And one of that's one of the things I try to stay away from social issues. Mm-hmm. Just that, hey, you know, you, you know, imagine a bunch of people, you know, everything goes to hell in a handbasket, and you got to figure it out. You know, everybody fends for themselves. 
you know, if, you know, when you're stupid, you get smacked. When you're smart, you get pat on the back. You know. So uh, as I said, I don't, I don't really care. You know, if a social issue comes up and gets dealt with, it's not intentional, and I like it that way. And it seems a lot of the people that have read my books, because of it, I think that's the main reason why a lot of them will say this would be a great movie. And I always tell people, please tell that to the producers. <laughs> yeah. Well, in other words, make the social issue subtle. That's correct. Yes. And and yeah, that makes a good story. Uh, it's just not where you're you're you are slamming the social issues or the political issues. Uh, as I know, certainly a lot, quite a, quite a bit of fiction is involved with politics, and uh, we just don't know it because it's surrounded with dwarves and elves and 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 you know other other fun characters. Um, yeah. Serenity, you know, has some political issues uh, embedded with their stories. Uh, and social not really slammed down your throat. So that's uh, Terra Nova. There, there were other issues involved with that, but uh, I, I think you might be right. They they got more into. Um, I mean, there's only so much you can do, in when they're stuck in one place, one location, as well. Yeah. So there was it's just other issues. Once once they 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 took off the part about you know where they came from. Um, yeah, it was no longer interesting to me. <laughs> yeah, I want to. I want. I want to find out more about why they left where they were from. Right, there's a lot of unanswered questions to that, and they were content to leave it behind. Yeah, and I didn't understand that. That to me was the big basis for the story, and uh, and that that was the interesting thing to me. I wanted to know well, why would they leave the future to go that far in the past? And uh, and and they got into more of the day to day, you know, uh, uh, trying to fight each other instead of instead of fighting where they came from. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's what bored me was uh, uh, this wasn't wasn't what I signed on for. Um, I signed on for because I wanted to know why these this group this would would go to this level, and I never found out that not really. Uh, well, I mean, the main family we found out one reason, but they still had to hide it. Yeah, the reason they had another kid on top of the ones they were they were not supposed to have, uh, only have a quota of children, and they decided to break that law. Yeah, so some of the things, and some of them you could relate to issues today, like for instance in China, how they limit the number of children and why it's such a big mm-hmm. deal. Yeah, so there there were a lot of overtones to the, the politics. That as it, you know, like I said after the, the first couple of episodes were great, but then they got away from this. Like I guess it's the survival instinct, and mm-hmm. a lot of people seem to like that. But once you get into the human on human issues, it just you know all of a sudden it's like oh here we go again, and I think that bores people. Yeah, yeah, and it's like oh we're already seeing this, and they'll change. Then you know they start changing the days of the of the shows. And before you know it, I was like, I don't even know when it's on, you know. So yeah. <laughs> even if I wanted yeah. to watch it, I wouldn't know when it's on. And that yeah. happens a lot. And that it's the same thing like you mentioned with politics. If, if you're watching a show that leans too much to the conservative side or too much to the liberal side, people get turned off by that. I mean, it's something that everybody gets turned off by because it's like, well, then, then you know what's going to happen. Then you know the outcome. It's just like, okay, you know, big deal. Here we go again. Right. Exactly, and and so you know we're, we just 
disinterested very very quickly. But I have a feeling though that that the um, turnover going survival uh, was probably inopportune time because I believe the survival the the survivor and survival type of uh, series are are actually uh, getting too mundane. Yeah. Uh, you know, finding even dumber ways just to sit there and waste our time watching other people who don't have a clue what they're doing in their life. Um. Yeah. Well, when those series started, the fun anymore. was yeah, it was fun to see these these people doing things to survive. I mean, they were actually doing things. Well, now it's like then they have the tribes, and then it's like who's getting voted out, and it's like oh gosh, you know, and then that's the end of it. Yeah, uh, you really lose interest. Yeah, so I, you know, Don and I have been talking about some of the survival things uh, for the future, and as I said, it's going to have to be different. It's going yeah. to have to be. It's going to have to be something completely different for for any for the the public to grab a hold of again and say, okay, this is something different. This is not like the other ones, but in in a way, it's the same, but not. This is something completely different. So uh, you got to change it because by yeah, in it near future, we're not going to be watching that kind of stuff. Yeah, unfortunately, we've gotten even worse. We've gotten into, you know, Hollywood Wives and all these other you know, shows that, again, people who, who are dysfunctional, um, and we're, we find interest in their dysfunction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, a lot of people seem to like the idea of survival. When you look at things like, how would you survive like a storm? Uh, or like, for instance, we had the day after tomorrow. Um, what happens if the Earth got cold like that? Or you know, what happens if you go into space, some of the things that could go wrong. But these are the things like, like humans learning to survive, not learning how to deal with each other. I mean, we deal with each other all, you know, all week long. We have, you know, by the weekend we had enough of each other, <laughs> you know. But, yeah. Um, like That's said, why I, like don't, I don't understand why we sit there and watch it on television. Yeah, that, and the biggest the biggest reason people read is for escapism, to escape reality, yeah. and that's something uh, everybody seems to forget. You know, like the TV show, like the the producers in a lot of cases. I mean, we don't want reality. We've had our, our fill of that. <laughs> and here they thought they were you know, getting into, and that's just it. Again, the market is changing um, on reality. Uh, and I actually was just confronted by a couple couple of uh, uh, public relations people, and that they're pushing the fact that that the teens are actually reading physical books rather than reading on their uh, you know e-readers or on their telephones. And I said, "Oh, really?" Because that's not what I thought was you know, uh, where the market was going. And they and and they're. Uh, the thought is that the teens of today are already submerged in technology, so much so that they want to get away from that and escape from the technology through books, physical books. Yeah, you need I to said, from it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I said, oh, really? I, I'd like to see the data on that one. <laughs> yeah, but, it's nice to have the option. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's always nice to have the option, and and I happen to know that the the senior market is definitely into the into the uh, technology. Believe it or not, you wouldn't think that'd be that way because of the fact that there is adjustable type. They can make it as bigger or small as they need. Um, so they like that ability, and also they're getting away from their physical books. They're they're going out and doing things, 
and they need to have something easily uh, that they can continue to read because they're definitely all readers. But or you know a lot of them are readers. Um, but they want something more uh, easier to uh, travel with them. So that That's market true, yeah. is absorbed in eBooks, but teens. Um, so I, I'm really interested to see whether or not this is really the case, because yeah. that could that could mean some good things for the, the print books again. Yeah, I think you'll see like a balancing out, like an equilibrium between the two. Just 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 for the simple reason, like you said, people, there's so much. Everything we do is based on technology. Sometimes you need a break from it. Yeah, and it while well, makes sense, um, I just like to see whether or not that's going to be a trend that's going to stick for a while. Yeah. Yeah. So that's something new that that uh, I just got word of uh, about a week ago, and I'm looking at this, and a lot of a lot of public uh, relations people are pushing this particular trend. And I said, hmm, something to definitely look at. So you know, one uh, of the comments, one of the comments I heard from uh, at, at um, this was Winston Salem, uh, North Carolina, about three weeks ago, um, talking to a lot of the different readers. They come through that we're talking with. A lot of them seem to think that, like, when they go to the big bookstores, uh, everything seems to be like cookie cutter. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, since like whatever the trend is, like the sparkly vampires or or uh, dragons or you know, it it just seems like uh, every book we pick up. And you know, I had noticed this too, and it kind of that's what kind of turned me off to a lot of the bigger bookstores. But it's true though. When I've talked to some of the big publishers. And I say, what yeah. are you looking for? And they'll tell you, well, this is all we're taking right now, this this topic. And right. It's like, okay, so great. So you're going to put out 50 new books, and all of them are going to be the, pretty much the same. You just change the name and the location, and that's that's it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so exactly. a lot of the, a lot of readers have commented they like the, the independent bookstores because they have books that are different, you know, that aren't cookie-cutter, and... One of the, that's one of the reasons why a lot of them they claim they come to the conventions because they meet different authors that have things that you're not going to find in the bookstore. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know what's interesting to me is that uh, actually, if you do this right, and uh, I know an author who who started with an ebook first, and he got a stand base based on ebooks, and then he went and printed the book. Um, so you know, you've got some people who are trying the other route and trying it the other way, and seeing how that works. Now he's going to turn around and do his second book. Now that he's got a fan base, uh, he's got the second book that we're we're getting done, and he's going to put that out in print as well as ebook at the same time. So it'd be curious to see what his numbers are based on based on that. These um, print books overall are just not selling as much. At all, at least not yeah, in life. Yeah, a lot of it too is brand recognition. If people know the author, if they've heard of the author, they're more likely to give them a shot. You know, at a later date. Um, like I said, I've, I know I've talked to a lot of people that say, "Yeah, I've heard your name come up a lot. I know you've been in a lot of the conventions, and yeah, I was never really interested in, in your stuff before, but you know, like so maybe I'll give it a shot." And it's funny, and I've seen this, you know, like I'm always watching and observing, like with other authors, how they deal with people, some of the reactions they draw. Uh, you know, because once again, you're always looking to improve yourself, and you try to learn from other people, or if you can share something with another author to help them, you know, you like to do that. But, uh, you know, that's something, like I say, you really, 
you know, you want people to get to know you. I mean, one of the things I like to do is almost like uh, you kind of like to entertain people, you know, have fun with them. You know, I try not to talk business with them like as far as buying the book. Like I, I like to open with a friendly conversation and, you know, give them a chance to relax and then, you know, then they feel comfortable looking at my books or asking questions. Yeah, uh, I watch you and I watch you in action, and I have to tell everyone that what you do is you sit there and, and make small talk. Some people will be standing there, and you say you met them at a party the night before, and uh, you're, you're saying, "Oh yeah, how so and so," and you know these people by name, you know who their wives are, and you know who their kids are, and you say, "Hey," says you know, "Is your daughter such and such?" Is she feeling any better from last night? And you, you've instantly uh, became uh, familiar with them as a friend. They, yeah, they never, never read your stuff before. And you guys are sitting there talking back and forth, and all of a sudden he looks down at, at your books and he goes, he goes, oh, yeah, this is something you were talking about last night. And you said, yeah, this is the one I was talking about. And the, before you know it, he's handing you money for the book. Yeah, because people like to feel like, I mean, as a writer, you need to give something back to people, whether it's friendship um, or whether it's like, you know, help in something they're trying to do. But it's a two-way street because, I mean, there's a, the book business is so competitive today because so many people can write. We have all the, the different technologies out there. We have, like, the, you know, the, the devices that will change your voice and take your voice and then put it into writing. Um, there's so many different ways to do a book and so many different ways to have a book printed. You know, it, it really is very competitive. And that's why I said for an author, and I mean, for me, like, for instance, going to a convention, it's I'm there, even though I'm selling books, I'm there to have a good time, to meet people, and, you know, to make friends. I mean, there's nothing better than going to a city far away from Philadelphia and knowing that there's going to be a lot of people there that I can hang out with afterwards and have a good time. Yeah, and and, and you do. You, you go to the bar with them, you go to the parties, um, and you, you make friends. And, and wherever you happen to be. So here you do 12 conventions on average per year. Um, how many of them are you are unique? I mean, do you, do you go to the same ones? I mean, I know you do some, but I want you to tell people how, kind of how that works. Well, I try to each year, like there's usually I'll do, do this. Six of them will be the same as the last year, and I'll try to introduce six new ones. Yeah, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out that way, but you know, on the whole, that's that's kind of my goal. Every year, I like to try to do some new ones. And like, for instance, if I've been to, like, let's say, Baldacon, if I've been there six years in a row, then I might take two years off. You know, give it a little bit of a break and try some other ones. Uh, especially the conventions, there's a lot of them that are on Memorial Day weekend, so it's really tough to go to a lot of them. You know, especially if you're you've been committed to one for a while. So you know, in that respect, it's good to change them around a little bit. Kind of. Uh... Distance makes your heart grow fonder. <laughs> yeah, but I've been—I've met a few people from up in the northwest, up around Oregon, uh, Washington State, that are always trying to talk me into coming up there. And that's probably the one area of the country I really haven't had a chance to get to. So uh, that's hopefully uh, next year that'll be on the radar somewhere. Awesome, awesome, and uh, I know that you're coming out to see us at the end of this year mm-hmm. uh, for. You know, he'll be here for New Year's, so that's definitely party time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll be out there for about 10 days. So we are definitely, uh, is anybody who's interested in getting Mike to come out and who's listening right now, um, it's not just right now, but I know that a lot of you don't have time to listen to it live. You're going to listen to it later. 
So this is his little plug. Contact me on Facebook if you're interested in having Mike come in in, in Phoenix area or outlining areas um, around New Year's this year. He'll come and talk to you about books, about screenplays, about adapting books to screenplays, and a lot about some tidbits that you know we didn't bring up here just so that way we show value to bringing you in and talking to the group. So... Uh, definitely contact me through Facebook, PJ Holstrand, um, or Michael D'Ambrosio, of course, uh, is also on Facebook. And you also have a website, which is, of course, Fractured Time. And I put that on there, everyone. If you're on the chat, is FractureTime.com. Um, if you put him in Google, put his name in Google, uh, or Fractured Time in Google, you'll be able to find his website. So it's very easy to find. Um, and you guys need to contact us so that way we can get you booked. Yeah, and I'll be uh, get town. your group booked. Yeah, I'll be in town till January 10th. I think I'm leaving to come back. So up until January 9th, I'll be open for for speaking with anybody. There you go. So hey, we got our our own plug there. Everyone's going, oh, there she is plugging. Hey, that's how it works. You gotta you gotta say, hey, he's gonna be in town. Uh, otherwise, you guys aren't gonna know. Unless, of course, you're, you're directly connected to me on Facebook and I bombard you, which I do. <laughs> yeah, and I do keep my website updated with information. So should should we get one of the, these movie deals signed, you know, you'll definitely see it on there. Yes, and and he has some of those things that he's talking about today about Burbank and the Pitch Summit uh, on his website already. So uh, on September 24th, he wrote about it, just so that way you know. Again, as soon as he gets a deal, I'm quite sure that uh, he'll definitely put it on his website so you guys will be able to find out. Uh, but he, uh, he write about it in there about once a week, I'd say. Yeah, and I do keep the links updated. Uh, there are links to all the different conventions I've been to. Uh, there's a link to Inktip for any of you writers out there that are interested in taking a look at it. Uh, that website is inktip.com. But any of the links there, if you click on them, it takes you right to their site. So, uh, like I said, I do love sharing that with people. That if you're looking for a different place to go, uh, pretty much anywhere in the country, I could probably tell you, you know, you know, the conventions that are going on in that area. So I do try to keep that updated with all kinds of information for uh, new fan goers, uh, new writers, you know, any anybody I could help. You know, I like I like sharing that. Definitely, and and you have you have enough books now that um, maybe you have eight books and uh, and there are. All adapted to, well, yeah, Night Creeps. We didn't even talk about Night Creeps. Uh, that's also been adapted to screenplay. Um, so that's different story. So tell us a little bit about Night Creeps. That's different well, that than we, your space adventures. <laughs> yeah, we had to change that one up quite a bit uh, for the script. Because uh, basically in the book, you know, you get to see, you know, some very angry women with some serious issues, uh, you know, kind of taking the, the revenge out on on. Well, the one, the, the lead antagonist, yeah, she kind of takes her vengeance out on the aliens. Uh, in a nutshell, it's three criminal aliens. Uh, they're they're hiding from their world. They come here and they have the idea they can build a mutant army. Well, they can also turn you into more of a hybrid, where you become more like them, uh, more of an alien instead of a, a mutant. So you're more, you know, you, you retain a lot of your your intelligence and all. But what they find out is that the worst thing in the world is an angry housewife. Uh, because uh, the worst, you know, once they empower her, she has an agenda all her own. 
And uh, a lot of like uh, the protagonists in the story are a sheriff and his deputies. Um, you know, they kind of remind you a little bit of Mayberry RFD, you know, at the beginning. And then you find out the sheriff's a lot smarter than they gave him credit for. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when we converted that to the script, you know, we got into, well, the, the producers, you know, several of them said, well, this would be perfect if you could turn around, you know, make the sheriff a black man. And, and he's in a rural white town, so there's racism and all. And, you know, and it, it was kind of awkward to do that. I mean, I, I was able to do it and have some fun with it. You know, because it, it did give them a little more motivation to succeed and, you know, to try to fight um, to get, you know, to earn their respect and all. But it also makes, you know, I was able to use that to make for a more ironic ending, you know, for the script. Uh-huh. So that did have to change a little bit. And a lot of the things, like I said, there are a lot of a lot of the scenes there where, you know, definitely you can see where, where women can have some angry issues. <laughs> so, but it's yeah. fun. I mean, something, you know, it seems like, uh, you know, there's things in there for the men. The men seem to enjoy uh, ironically, it seems like Night Creeps have been a, has been a big seller with the women. You know, a lot of the feedback I've got is they they really enjoy that. Well, I think you empowered them in a way. It's such an, an alien mutant format. <laughs> That's true. But the irony of that is Night Creeps came about from a convention I was at, and I met a woman. You know, at the bar, me, her, and the bartender were talking. And she starts off telling us about her ex-boyfriend and her ex-husband. And she's holding a steak knife while she's telling the story. Well, she goes from pointing the steak knife to digging it into the bar to turning it and cutting a hole in the bar. <laughs> I mean, she was really going to town on it. And she, she became more angry as she told the story. Her face got redder. And, you know, it got to a point where I got scared. And I said, I got to go. And the bartender's like, please don't go. Don't leave me here. <laughs> At all. And then the next night I go back and um, there's a little old man there at the bar. And I said, how you doing tonight? And he says, oh, he goes, my wife just passed away. So I said, well, I'm sorry to hear that. He says, I'm not. He goes, when I married her, she was an angel. He goes, but something happened to her. She turned into a monster. And those two things kind of gave me the glue for the story. So, it kinda, <laughs> so it's kind of ironic, but that's what i got to thank the fans for. <laughs> well, this goes to show you that your ideas can come from any form. That's right. <laughs> it's it's a little things, and uh, you know uh, that's how short stories are are come to pass too. You find something uh, that triggers a memory, and you start writing from that. And the, I know Ray Bradbury, uh, recently departed, um, has said that you know that's what he takes his memories. He, he leaves them in there to ferment, you know, ferment, and then uh, you see something around him uh, or something that happens that triggers that memory. And before you know it, he's got a short story on it. Yeah. Well, it's but funny. Again, sometimes <laughs> sometimes just being around certain people stimulate ideas. I mean, you've seen when uh, when uh, Don, Jacques, and myself get together. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's like a ping pong game with the ideas going back and forth. Yeah, yeah. You guys go crazy. <laughs> crazy. Uh, feed, feeding off of each other. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, he and I do the same thing when we're, uh, he suddenly gets on a, uh, again, something triggers uh, a thought process, and before you know it, uh, he's, you know, he, he's excited, he can't even sit down, he's he's pacing, and I'm sitting here watching him pace, and he's, we're talking about things, and before you know it, we've developed a, an outline based on that thought, so, uh, you know, sometimes we see a movie, and it, it, it causes us to change, you know, we talk about it and by the time we get home, um, 
he's already thinking about well what do we do? what if we changed it this way what if we did this and what if we take that spark of an idea and and make it into something new and that's the fun part of of being an author but that's that's a key thing there when you said about how he paces and all how he gets he gets excited about about his his story what it's going to be yeah. and as a writer if you don't get excited about your story it's probably not worth writing <laughs> you know you have to feel it you have to like feel for the characters yeah, and I think fiction authors especially, um, they, we have to have passion behind the story. Otherwise, if we're not passionate about the story, then why would anybody want to read it? Yeah, it's funny when you can do that with, with a lot of your characters. Like, for instance, back in Fractured Time, we had um, Penny Nichols, the the girlfriend. And I I started you know playing with our character a little bit at the beginning, and it was just kind of like like a test. And ironically, I get more response from people over her than any other character because they either they feel so strongly either they want to punch her in the face or they feel bad <laughs> for her and they you know that's the shame you know that poor girl and it's it's ironic, but these are the kind of things you strive for as a writer when you can make characters affect people you know I know a lot yeah. of people think uh, the other two characters uh, Ronnie and Randy that they're you know those two girls they like you know they you know I always hear well those girls sound like they're really hot they sound like they'd be great to party with you know things like that and, you know it, you know some people might say well I don't care for those kind of girls maybe they care for somebody like Penny or uh, you know like I said different characters you know but you build them in such a way that they're they're strong in their own detail yeah uh, I I find that uh, I I try not so much to have people fall in love with my main character guy because he's mine. <laughs> But you know, and so I have to say, oh yeah, you know, I love love Parker, brother, uh, you know, Walker. He, he sounds like really, like I could really get into him, and he's you know handsome, that kind of thing. And I said, good, you go ahead and take him. <laughs> <laughs> well, the one comment I always get from people, they tell me it's a good thing I don't write romance because my romances are so dysfunctional. And I say, yeah, but but have you ever seen a functional romance? <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. There's never an easy romance. If it starts off easy, it crashes and burns real hard. Yeah. Isn't that isn't that true? Isn't that true? Because uh, yeah. I know that for a fact. But, uh, but I've heard people I've say, "Let's uh, a couple of those." But yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've heard people say I enjoyed following this because I liked seeing what happened to her because she was such such a witch and she reminded me of my ex. And I've heard women say like. Well, it's good what happened to that guy. He deserved that. I'm glad he, had, you know, this, it didn't work, you know, things like that. So it's kind of fun because people, they can, like I said, it's escapism. They can kind of live out some of their feelings. Yeah, emotional value to the to the characters. You evoke emotional impact, uh, stimuli from others when when they read it. There, there is no greater pleasure for an author than when you connect to a an, uh, to a character. Either for the positive or negative. That's right. That's that's like euphoria for us writers. <laughs> it's like as I say, I say, man, I really hated that guy, and I said, oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you know, even, if, <laughs> even if it's a negative feeling, it's you know, you still you drew an emotion. Yeah, but you if, drew if, an you, emotion. if you don't, yeah, if you don't draw emotion for your characters, I mean, then they're boring, and they probably don't need to be there. <laughs> Yeah, uh, my my son happens to love Terrence, and and he's like uh, Tame's best friend. Uh, he gets to go through a lot of things because of it. And uh, so Max said, "Well, you know, Mom, he's got a story." I said, "He does." 
He didn't tell me that. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, he goes, yeah, you got to do a story on him. Got to do a story. He's got to. He has his own story. And I said, oh, really? Okay. And then I was watching a, a movie, um, and I said, oh my gosh, there it is. And you tweak it, and and because he's a captain, and so uh, you find out, oh my gosh, he does have a story. <laughs> uh, so I was okay. Well, there goes yeah that he was right. <laughs> yeah, Ter- Terrence does have a story, and and so I started writing an outline of of Terrence's story, and I was all excited about it because I didn't know he had it. I thought he was an extension of the main character. Yeah, you know, he he was there to serve a purpose. Um, even though he was he was kind of a I mean, yeah, he was pretty prominent in the in the books, but uh he winds up falling to the side because uh the time period is in. But uh then you realize, oh my gosh, he's he's got he does have a story. And isn't that just so funny how that works? <laughs> That's it's funny when you talk about bonding with characters. Uh, when uh, Space Front, uh, Frontiers started with the Eye of Icarus, uh, I, a lot of the teenagers really enjoyed it because the lead characters, you know, being 18 and 16, they pretty much did about as many things wrong as you could imagine. And, you know, and they just, you know, anything that could go wrong for them did go wrong, you know, including up to, you know, when she gets pregnant. So uh, the teenagers loved it. And then, you know, one day I got a phone call from a woman in Los Angeles, Mona Miller, about her radio show. And she asked me to go on it live, and, you know, of course, you know, you're not going to turn it down. So, uh, you know, the way she presented it, she said, you know, I've read this book, and this book is really great because it it really teaches a lot of moral issues to, to young children, you know, to teenagers. And I'm thinking to myself, it does. And uh, I was really surprised because I didn't write it with that in mind. But the kids loved it because they got to see what, you know, you got to kind of live out through the characters when you make mistakes, how hard it makes life. And, um, you know, how hard it made their, like... Uh, for instance, when um, you know Shannon in, uh, in the Ivicarus, she gets pregnant, and lead character Will, he doesn't want her going on the missions anymore, and she gets upset. And her attitude, you know, she says, "If this is how it's going to be, I don't want the baby." So this is the kind of thing that kids have to confront. So yeah, uh, you know, so the, you know, the adults seem to like it because it taught a lesson. The kids liked it because they got you know they got to see somebody else get in trouble for a change. <laughs> so. So it kind of like surprised me because I I didn't think of it from that angle when I wrote the story. It was just a fun story, and you know my attitude is I know from like my adventures that I've been on over the you know in other countries, you know you know and if something can go wrong, it will go wrong. So I kind of like to write with that in mind. Definitely the case. Definitely the case. And do you realize that we're we're down to three three minutes and some odd seconds? So uh, you know it's been so wonderful talking to you that I just totally lost track of time. As yeah, I usually pleasure. do with you. <laughs> so, if if somebody wanted wanted to write a screenplay, what would you advise, and what was their first step they need to take? Um, I would recommend. Well, you have to learn the fundamentals of writing a screenplay. Um, you know, that's the first thing. And there's books out there you can get. Um, you can take classes on it. But then, once you you learn how to write a screenplay, then the next thing you have to learn how to to do is is to make it marketable. Like, for instance, if if you're serious about selling it. Pick a genre that's easy to get started in, like uh, romance comedies are good sellers. Um, horror, if it's low-budget horror, um, they're the ones that have the best chance. If you start off like I did, going with uh, bigger-budget science fiction, science fiction's already a tough market, and uh, yeah, so it, it's going to be a long uphill battle. Uh, I said, especially if you get into the bigger-budget items, uh, 
Like one producer said for my one script, he said there's only about five producers in the world that can get a budget to do this. So that kind of deflates you a little bit when you hear it. But these are all things to consider when you write your first script. Um, if it's got, you know, you don't want to write something that's going to be the, bit, the next big blockbuster when you're you're just you're doing your first one. So uh, you know, you learn to understand understand the market. But um, you know, that's, that's definitely the you know learn screenplay fundamentals. And you know, then after that, you know, probably the thing to do is you can go online and you can search movies that have already been made. You can get copies of those scripts. You know, they do put them out there that you can copy a script and you can take a look at it and actually see. Uh, the working script, you know, to give you an idea, the dialogue, things like that. You don't want to copy anything like that because, uh, I said, uh, for instance, Josh Whedon, uh, when he did uh, Serenity, he, because he wrote it for himself, he has his own style, so he doesn't always follow the fundamentals. So that's where Uh you you have to be careful sometimes. Right, since he he publishes, um, I mean, he's his producer of his his own work. He doesn't have to go through the uh, different levels. The different levels that uh, somebody else would. But, yeah, and there's, uh, yeah, and there's there's a lot of things that you can talk about. I mean, we could talk for hours on that, but I would say you know the first thing is definitely to learn the fundamentals of writing a screenplay and being able to divide it into your your plot points, your your three. Basically, it, it compares when they talk about a three act, see uh, a three act story. Uh, you want to be able to divide your script into basically your three scenes. You know your your you know your plot points and I said we could talk for hours on that too but you know if you can if you can do that like I said once you get the fundamentals and, and the plot points down then you you know you, you can write a pretty decent script and I know awesome. at the convention the conventions well you've been with me a few right. times when we've actually talked about things to know about writing the screenplay before you write it you know all the different things to consider so you know that's, yeah, that's something we're down. we're down to seconds here so we're going to okay <laughs> yeah. so they need to get. Uh, I gave them your Facebook page information. Of course, their website's on the chat here. Um, Michael D'Ambrosio is, is capital D A M B R O S I O dot seven 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 is his uh, name on Facebook. So definitely take you know visit him, find out some more details. Uh, but we're on ten seconds, so I'm gonna have to say goodbye. <laughs> Alrighty, thanks again for having me, Patty. Thanks. That's, that's it for everyone here. That was Michael D'Ambrosio, and this is Patty Holstrand signing off on KWOD Radio. And it's been a pleasure talking to you. <laughs>